Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Joe William Trotter, author of Pittsburgh and the Urban League Movement. Our guest today is Joe William Trotter, Jr., and he is the author of this book, Pittsburgh and the Urban League Movement. Professor Trotter, why did you write this book? Well, you know, there are several reasons, uh, Brian, why I wrote this book. Uh, but I have to say that the most important one in terms of generating the energy to go forward to research and write uh, this book uh, had to do with the uh, urban leagues uh, of Greater Pittsburgh. Um, Esther Bush, uh, the president and CEO of that organization, uh, several years ago, as they were planning uh, for the 100th anniversary of the um, founding of the Urban League of Pittsburgh, which was founded in 1918, um, they wanted to know if I would be interested in writing a centennial history uh, in order to have that volume available for the celebration. Um, and as all books go, um, it took a while, you know, to really get uh, moving on that book. Um, but in the end, uh, I decided that I wanted to do somewhat of a different uh, book. Um, initially, the uh, centennial volume was going to proceed on the basis of, you know, established scholarship. What do we know about Pittsburgh's Urban League? that has been published. Uh, and as it turned out, there wasn't a lot of published work on the Urban League of Pittsburgh. And so in order to do a book uh, justice on this important organization, I felt that I had to go to the primary sources to really go back to the Urban League records uh, from its founding in 1918 uh, through, uh, um, yeah, in 1918, through its, um, you know, recent history. And so I ended up putting a lot more time into the archives. Uh, and it was really important to do so because the records of the Urban League are pretty extensive and pretty rich in terms of their details. And so I decided I'd write this book um, that was in many ways a response to the Urban League's uh, request, uh, but also it really went beyond uh, that request and became a book uh, that really spoke not only to a celebration of the city's um, Urban League's centennial, but also I decided that this book had to re respond uh, to the literature on the National Urban League uh, across the country. And so another reason that sort of generated energy to get this book done uh, is that as I looked around, uh, most of the local studies of the Urban League uh, have, have focused on New York, Chicago, and to some extent Atlanta, uh, surprisingly, a southern branch. Um, and so Pittsburgh, uh, doing a case study of the Urban League in Pittsburgh, ended up um, actually adding another pillar, so to speak, 
uh, to the literature on the local Urban League and the way it interacted uh, with the national office uh, to produce this tremendous movement over a century of time. So for people who are not familiar with it, what is the Urban League? The Urban League is an um, organization that was formed nationally around 1909-1910, and it was designed to actually address uh, the many issues that confronted black people as they made their great migration uh, from southern rural life, especially in sharecropping areas of the South, but all across the South, black people were moving into these uh, northern industrial cities, northeastern, midwestern uh, in industrial cities. And the issues that they confronted were tremendous. They had difficulties gaining the kind of work that was, you know, most suitable in some ways to build families and so on. And they were having issues with housing and encounters with the local criminal justice system and educational issues. And so this um, Urban League movement was designed to really address the economic and social issues that African Americans faced on a day-to-day -day basis, gaining a foothold in the economy, getting a, a decent place to live, uh, uh, getting their children enrolled in school, uh, taking care of their health issues, and the whole range of issues uh, that affected the lives of black people was the mission of the Urban League. Uh, but the Urban League had a motto, and it was not arms, but opportunity. And so there was a kind of philosophical orientation to this work uh, that was designed to bring about self-reliance on the part of African Americans as they moved into the city. And it was not about a sort of charity uh, organization, per se, uh, you know, just giving money, food, clothing, uh, but it was about getting them situated in a valuable uh, a job, a valuable uh, business, or some means of making a livelihood and sustaining their lives independently. And so that was the Urban League movement. And after the New York chapter, um, and especially during the World War I period and thereafter, uh, these branches just uh, flourished across the country, uh, moving you know, across the urban Northeast into the Midwest and finally out uh, to the West. And then Southern uh, branches gradually took hold, but uh, the South was not as amenable uh, to these branches. And so uh, that was a slower process over time. Now, you say that the, uh, the Urban League in Pittsburgh was started in 1918. If you would visit Pittsburgh in 1918, what was the city like, and what would life have been like for an African-American living in Pittsburgh in 1918? Yeah, this is, this is a moment of, of um, dramatic um, black population growth. Um, African-Americans are beginning, uh, in many ways, they started to move into Pittsburgh in large numbers before World War I, uh, but during the war years, that migration continued. And over time, it, it continued to develop uh, less dramatically than it did in some other cities. Uh, but this was a period of massive migration uh, that brought about 
uh, some disruption, you know, in the lives of people, uh, and they had to make adjustments uh, to the city. And uh, demographically, that's a good, uh, an important question, uh, Brian, to raise because uh, African Americans in 1910 uh, was an estimated 25,000, or about 5% of Pittsburgh's total population. Uh, and if you look at the Great Migration over the entire uh, period when it peaked out, uh, Pittsburgh's African American population in 1970 had increased to about 105,000. Uh, it had increased to about 20% uh, of the total. And so that's the population uh, that the Urban League movement is addressing within the context of Pittsburgh. Uh, and so the, the, uh, un the, the employment situation during the war years, uh, jobs opened up. And so African Americans were able to move into industrial jobs and compared to the South, they were making more money uh, than they had ever made. Um, and they were feeling a sense of upward mobility. During the war years, there was a, a significant uh, sort of celebration of, of industrial work over the low wages of prior uh, work in, in um, uh, Southern agriculture. Um, but along with that, uh, getting a job inside of the industrial system uh, was the challenge of gaining access to housing in the city. And so African Americans found it very difficult to find suitable housing. Uh, railroad boxcars, all kinds of makeshift uh, living arrangements uh, they had to um, accommodate to. And in some cases, they actually uh, lived on the job uh, for a while before they could actually find housing inside uh, the, you know, urban uh, housing market. So it was a difficult um, uh, time uh, for people. And also the health conditions, um, discrimination in the uh, health and medical fields uh, aggravated and hampered uh, African Americans' uh, access to health care and the housing that they did inhabit in the city uh, happened to have been housing uh, that was in some of the most dilapidated uh, and unhealthy uh, conditions in the city. Uh, and, and the Urban League um, uh, took to heart um, research. You know, that was part of the mission, is to research every dimension of the lives of black people in order to assess uh, what kind of needs they had and how to begin to address them. And so one of the things that this book uh, uh, talks about and include are uh, just uh, numbers of studies uh, that underscore uh, the inequality in the experiences of African Americans in jobs, housing, health, uh, access to public accommodation, a whole range of issues uh, and challenges that African-Americans faced uh, during those first uh, years of the Great Migration and would persist in varying degrees across uh, the 20th century. Well, as African-Americans would arrive in Pittsburgh as part of the Great Migration, when they arrive in Pittsburgh, what kind of job opportunities were there for them? Well, they entered the steel mills. I mean, that was uh, the mainstay uh, of the job structure. and. 
uh, Brian, the irony is that before World War I, uh, when blacks entered the steel mills for the first time, uh, they came in uh, as largely strike breakers, as white steel workers uh, left the job, walked off the job. Um, these companies went south, and they recruited African-Americans uh, to come into the steel uh, mills. Uh, but they not only recruited them as sort of the uh, laboring job, but they also uh, recruited them in some of the uh, jobs as butlers and other sort of skill capacities within the steel industry. And so um, disproportionately during the pre-war period, African Americans were operating in what you might call a broader range of skills as well as so-called unskilled jobs. But with the Great Migration, they flooded into essentially the jobs at the very baseline of the industry. They were working mainly in what was considered the hot, heavy, and um, labor-intensive uh, jobs at the bottom of the workforce. And that was the um, experience that they would uh, have uh, until, largely until the onset of the modern civil rights movement started to break down those barriers to blacks moving up into more skilled jobs. Now, they also were able to move into some of those jobs during World War II under the impact of the tremendous labor demands of that period. And so, uh, for the most part, though, over most of the period, uh, they were working in jobs that were limited, and the predominantly white labor movement uh, placed uh, tremendous barriers on their access uh, to the skilled craft, and even to the um, uh, construction jobs, you know, the skilled carpentry jobs um, and brick mason jobs, and all of those kinds of jobs um, were limited uh, because of the uh, discrimination by labor, uh, but also uh, managerial discrimination in the steel industry and so on. Now, the African Americans who were living in Pittsburgh before the Great Migration, how did they react to this influx of, of African Americans from the South? Did they see them as competition for jobs, or were they welcome? Um, there, were, um, there were some tensions in the relationships that emerged uh, between African Americans and, um, I'm talking about the migrants and the people who lived in uh, Pittsburgh. Um, but on the surface, I think uh, most of that friction took place in the context of the neighborhoods uh, rather than in the context of just outright economic uh, competition. Uh, I think many northern blacks uh, really um, believe, you know, that they, you know, would like to avoid, you know, some of the um, uh, circumstances under which uh, Southern blacks, you know, felt obliged uh, in some cases to really uh, uh, live and work under. Uh, but there was, I think the friction um, was a lot less uh, evidence of them saying, we don't want them taking these jobs in the steel industry. Uh, there was, there's not evidence on that. I don't have evidence on that. But in terms of neighborhoods and the idea that they are moving in and embarrassing us with their behavior, and in the loud 
talking in the streets and all kinds of ways in which, you know, they were involved in their own world of um, leisure time, uh, you know, um, bootlegging and gambling. And that was the kind of friction uh, that you begin to see uh, a lot more uh, than them, than a lot more than Pittsburgh blacks standing at the barriers and saying, you're not going to take my job. That, that uh, was not a manifestation. Well, uh, th there were other immigrant groups in Pittsburgh at the time from, say, Eastern Europe and Italy. How did they react to the Great Migration? Well, this, this is a situation in which Europeans were being called home, and there was a lot of uh, return migration uh, because of the war. Uh, many of them were, you know, leaving uh, for their countries and, and, and enrolling in the military, you know, back home. And also, um, uh, other large numbers of white men were being recruited into the military, and the military was beginning to take up a lot of this labor power, and that actually opened the door uh, for African Americans to start moving into these jobs in, in larger numbers. Uh, it's not like industry was all that enthusiastic about recruiting blacks into the, into the steel industry, uh, but with this, um, you know, this downturn in the number of available men um, uh, for that industry opened the door uh, for African Americans to move in there in, in larger numbers. Uh, and also, we're talking about a long period of time now. We're not just talking about the war years. Um, after the war, there was a lot of uh, friction uh, between, you know, African Americans and whites, you know, for jobs. Uh, because the industry was be beginning to lay off workers, and blacks uh, were feeling like they were disproportionately disadvantaged uh, when the uh, demobilization took place and industry started to power down. Um, and so there you begin to see discrimination and all of that uh, surfacing in a more, uh, you know, powerful way. Uh, and also blacks started to, in, in some cases, uh, to leave, you know, the city and to move around uh, a bit and to um, try to adjust uh, to the changing circumstances. But that was, you know, roughly 21, 22, but by the mid-20s, then there was a resurgence in the black migration into Pittsburgh, and they, they were getting a foothold, and white competition was less uh, uh, an issue than it may have been uh, but the government had clamped down on European immigration into the country and limited the new immigrants who could come in. And so it, it sustained that level of uh, demand, so to speak, for black workers uh, who continued uh, and to begin to return uh, in, in large numbers. Now, in 1918, when the organization was founded, who were the people who got it started and where did they get their money? Okay, now this, the founding in 1918 was really an uh, interracial effort. And in fact, uh, the sources on this period of the founding uh, talks about an interracial band of reformers uh, founded the organization. And uh, the earliest president was Walter May, uh, a man who made his money pretty much as um, um, pharmaceutical um, or drug, you know, store um, company, 
uh, operator, and he was uh, one of the leading uh, founders of the organization. And another influential white founder of the organization um, was a man uh, named uh, Tyson. Uh, he was a, um, uh, an economist uh, at the University of, of uh, Pittsburgh, um, and um, he um, managed to really uh, play an important role in um, helping to get um, one of his BS students uh, to actually transform his uh, BS um, project uh, into um, a, a study of, of migration of black people into Pittsburgh. Uh, and his name was Abraham Epstein. And his book on the migration of these early blacks to Pittsburgh helped to uh, set the foundation, uh, the, the uh, research foundation uh, for the founding of the organization uh, in 1918. Uh, but the way the Urban League operates is that it sends its own people into the city to do surveys of the city uh, in order to establish a rationale for the creation of a new branch. And so these three men, Walter May, um, uh, Tyson, and Abraham Epstein, uh, they were some of the core white uh, supporters of the Urban League. Uh, and then on top of that, the corporate community, the steel industry, uh, different um, companies um, added their support uh, to the Urban League. And some of the early black founders included people like Robert Van, who was um, the um, um, editor and owner of the Pittsburgh Courier. Uh, and these people formed a kind of interracial you know, team uh, that helped to put the Urban League on its feet. Now, you mentioned in here that uh, with the funding from the Carnegie Steel Company, the ULP hired a recent graduate as its first industrial secretary. And then on the, on the next page, you say the ULP's job placement efforts encountered stiff resistance from a number of industrial employers, including the Pittsburgh Railway Company, Westinghouse, and the Heinz Pickle Factory. Could you d get a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle yeah. and say the good companies and the bad companies? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a, a mixed picture, I must say. Uh, some company did resist hiring African-Americans and put up resistance. But even Westinghouse eventually hired black workers. Um, and so, you know, it's a mixed picture. And uh, some of this uh, has to do with um, trying to keep black workers confined to these so-called unskilled, unskilled occupations. And also, of course, um, believing that their white workers would not accommodate uh, the employing of, of African-Americans. Uh, but enough of these companies started to hire blacks uh, that it sustained an increase of the black population over time and an increase in number of blacks as part of the overall steel labor force. So, um, yes, all of those things. And I try to talk about uh, those uh, differences, you know, in terms of some, some companies being more amenable to African-American employment and others putting up pretty stiff barriers. Um, and then there's this whole question of change over time, too, uh, where, you know, companies that may have been very resistant at the beginning will gradually start adding black workers uh, as they uh, increase in numbers in the city. 
Now, right in the beginning I'm of the talking. book, in the, in the prologue, you write, some scholars and popular writers argue that the Urban League movement was largely a conservative force that rarely improved the lives of the black poor. What do you mean by that, the, a conservative force? Yeah, there, this is um, the case, Brian, where I'm uh, trying to navigate and set up the study so that uh, this, is, this is not just a study of, you know, what the, actu what the Urban League uh, was able to accomplish, per se, or the programs they instituted and how they did that over a long period of time. It's also uh, an effort to navigate uh, the interpretation of what did the Urban League story mean, what did all of this mean in terms of their uh, social service activities and so on. And so that point that you are raising now is about uh, the literature on the Urban League movement as a national phenomenon. And so you have several different scholars weighing in on this question. And the item uh, that uh, you referenced is one perspective on the Urban League movement. There's this sense in some of the literature that the Urban League movement, you know, from its inception, especially at its beginning, uh, was a conservative movement uh, grounded in northern, you know, cities, New York, uh, but pretty much um, reflecting uh, the Booker T. Washington kind of approach. You know, there's a kind of sense that Washington accommodated uh, to the segregationist order and that the Urban League was also about bringing blacks into the industrial workplace and into the industrial city uh, without altering uh, that segregated uh, environment, that white supremacist system under which the Urban League had to operate uh, during the Jim Crow era. And so there's a sense that the Urban League was a conservative movement uh, that wasn't going to rock the boat, that was going to simply get blacks jobs, um, situate them in, in segregated housing, and uh, accommodate the system. So that's one perspective. Uh, another perspective is that no, that is altogether uh, uh, wrong because from the beginning, um, other scholars argued that the Urban League mirrored uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, intensive engagement in uh, challenging white supremacy and pushing for African-American civil rights and equal access to American institutions, and that the Urban League was actually part of a larger movement that was designed to level the playing field eliminate those racial barriers, and move black people into a more equitable place within the economy, housing, and so on of the city. And so there is, those are sort of two polar positions, uh, but there is another position, one that in many ways the Urban League story that I tell um, is part of this uh, with some um, adjustment, and that is that the Urban League was definitely not a movement that just accommodated uh, to Jim Crow. Um, almost everywhere you see the Urban League uh, challenging, pushing against it, and so on. Uh, but the argument in this third view is that uh, it still was an organization that tended to favor um, the middle class, favor educated and professional people. And so there is an argument that it tended to uh, bias its programs toward that group. Um, but I think looking at the Urban League of Pittsburgh, the story that I try to tell in this book, 
is that the Urban League is, is a complicated organization that really in the end tried to navigate building a better world for both black workers and for aspiring educated middle-class blacks. So it was constantly uh, struggling to reconcile, deal with uh, these issues. Uh, but even so, even in Pittsburgh, uh, where I say that, you know, it was working mightily uh, to help black workers and uh, black educated people, it still tended to have an ideological bias in terms of its uh, perspective uh, toward uh, um, the middle class. And so even the Urban League would sometimes uh, refer to uh, the newcomers, the people who were just up from the South uh, as people who were less educated, ignorant, and so on. And in some cases, uh, it was very abrasive. I've, I sort of mentioned this earlier where I said some of the friction uh, was in the community. And so what I want to do, I want to read you a passage uh, that tend to get at uh, some of this um, uh, bias, you know, that some of the urban leaguers had uh, toward black people, uh, but they still fought against these biases internally. And here is a quote uh, section that I want to read about one of the women urban league assistants, secretary, uh, secretary, her name was Margaret Peg Shaw, uh, Clark's secretary. This is John Clark, the first um, executive director of the Urban League of Pittsburgh. Um, Clark's secretary during, the, during his tenure in Pittsburgh recalled how old Pittsburghers resented the Urban League for developing programs on behalf of the newcomers. They felt it was an intrusive an intrusion because they were accustomed to taking care of their own. They did not like this organization giving handouts. According to Shaw, old Pittsburghers had no experience with Southern blacks at all with their gingham dresses and bonnets and were so polite. Shaw acknowledged that she, too, resented the migrants. She recalled that when migrants passed her office door and greeted her in a friendly manner, she would not return the greeting until her mother uh, sat her down and told her that she had better speak to them and be polite and that she would not stand for me to ignore them. And then only gradually, Shaw said, did both the community and the urban leaguers become accustomed to the migrants and stop shunning and denouncing them. Uh, that's a passage that tried to get at some of these internal conflict uh, and social uh, tensions uh, that accompanied uh, uh, the migration. Now, your book covers the, the scope of the whole hundred years, and, and including the Depression and the, the World Wars. But as, as the Civil Rights Movement changed, uh, how did the, did the Urban League's mission change over time? Um, yeah, the, the, uh, Brian, that's a lot of territory. You're absolutely right. 
Uh, but one of the things I want, let's try to navigate to the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, the 1920s is a pivotal moment because that's when the Urban League establishes itself and establishes an agenda uh, for dealing with uh, African Americans. And during the 1920s, the Urban League uh, activities revolve a lot around these corporate elites, these corporate funders uh, that help the Urban League um, finance its program. So there's a lot of conversation uh, between these, um, you know, these steel owners, the owners of the steel industries. Um, during the 1930s, though, when you have the steel industry plummeting and blacks uh, facing unemployment and, and rising numbers, there was a, a significant change in the way the Urban League went about its work. Uh, and in the 30s, you begin to see the New Deal coming into play, uh, government-funded programs, and um, in housing, in employment, all kinds of social services, the government is involved. And so you start to see the Urban League uh, shifting some of its emphasis uh, toward forging relationships uh, between agencies that, and more and more agencies that are getting uh, their uh, money and resources from federal uh, sources. And so there is a way in which the government and the relationship between the government and the Urban League uh, starts to take on um, more importance. And so, and also this is a point where you begin to see uh, some of the convergence in the um, uh, condition and, and of both middle and working class people. I mean, uh, uh, lots of people are suffering whether they are educated or, or not. And so there is a real push uh, to really take care of the African-American community and to make sure that those resources uh, are available. And, and as a result, there's a lot more involvement in the political side of these issues. Uh, and so this is a period where I say that it started during the 1920s. Uh, the Urban League started to merge its social service agenda with its social justice agenda and to push for the opening up of opportunities for African Americans across all uh, aspects uh, of life in the environment. And so that's the interwar years, you know, where uh, you begin to see this push uh, and pressure on government agencies and so on uh, to add blacks in an equitable way. And so that the Urban League wasn't just getting help from the government, it was also pressuring the government to gain access uh, to these resources. And so that uh, plays out in a lot of ways during the Depression um, and World War II. But after the war, you do see the uh, Urban League, uh, unlike other cities, uh, taking on a pretty militant social justice orientation. And there are two examples that stand out. Uh, the desegregation of the Highland Park swimming pool uh, involved the Urban League's uh, director, executive director directly, um, and the um, the desegregation of department stores and pressure on department stores downtown uh, to begin hiring African Americans uh, in um, different capacities as workers 
uh, because African Americans were patrons of these uh, different places. And the Urban League participated in, in some uh, grassroots protests against discriminatory um, department stores, uh, Gimbel's, Kaufman, and others. Uh, but also, it was hands-on in, um, uh, in challenging uh, the exclusion of blacks from the Highland Park swimming pool and creating a segregated set of, of um, recreational facilities for blacks and whites. And so that happened in the early um, uh, 50s. Uh, and so um, Urban League was very uh, much ahead of its time in a, a lot of ways uh, in challenging uh, some of these uh, racial barriers uh, in the um, economy and institutional life of the city. And even before, you, you might say, the very heart of the Pittsburgh Civil Rights Movement, where organizations like, um, you know, the um, um, United Protest Committee that was sort of an arm of the NAACP, United Movement for Progress, uh, the Black Construction Coalition, Operation Dig, all of these sort of militant mid-1960s organizations that started to challenge all kinds of institutions in Pittsburgh, uh, including utilities, the Board of Education, uh, department stores still, and um, all of these organizations came under intensive uh, fire uh, from these new uh, and more militant uh, black freedom struggle uh, organization. And that's where you begin to see the Urban League uh, sort of taking, um, you might say it began to lose, in a way, uh, some of that earlier um, persona of being in the forefront of these direct action movements. And these organizations started to push so hard uh, that in, in these more militant organizations, the Urban League uh, sort of didn't participate in those um, um, militant street demonstrations. But what they did do is change their strategy of social service and social justice. And they served as mediators, uh, more or less, uh, during this period between the militants who were pushing for the same things that the Urban League had been pushing for uh, since its founding, equal access to jobs, housing, health, education. Uh, and they began to mediate some of these demands and to be, uh, they became a sort of um, um, communicator uh, between the corporate structure um, that was beginning to fear uh, these grassroots movement and we're beginning to pay much more attention uh, to the Urban League um, as a movement and felt that the Urban League represented a kind of organization uh, that was more amenable uh, to the kind of approach uh, that they uh, could work with. So after- And so your point, is, your point is very well taken. And just let me, if I may, just read um, a section where this particular approach uh, to uh, the challenge 
of the modern civil rights movement, modern black freedom struggle, um, is, is captured uh, in an interview with Arthur Edmonds, who was the, you know, Edmonds became the executive um, director of the Urban League in uh, 1960. And so by the mid-60s, um, the organization was under a lot of criticism for being essentially a middle-class organization. And young people uh, in the organization, uh, like Ralph Proctor, uh, PhD from the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, William Robinson, another um, very uh, uh, militant activist uh, tried to get the Urban League to push beyond some of its earlier strategies and to be much more forthcoming and supportive of the most militant wing of the black freedom movement. And so here's what uh, Edmonds said. Edmonds said, we were considered the good guys. He's talking about, about the corporate structure because we were not participating, we were not participant in the mass demonstrations companies would run to us for help so that they wouldn't have to deal with the troublemakers. What these companies did not realize was that we were very much involved in the strategy. We knew who was going to be targeted. So we just sat back and waited for the militant to scare the companies in our direction even more even some black folks did not understand and accused the Urban League of being too docile. Edmonds provided vital information to activists regarding corporate responses to efforts to increase job opportunities for black people when an official at Equitable Gas Company lied to the UNPC, the United Negro Protest Committee, and said that they had tried to get qualified blacks from the Urban League. The Urban League was able to tell Jim McCoy, the head of the UNPC, that the man was lying. And so uh, in an interview for the Remembering African American Pittsburgh Oral History Project, Edmonds reiterated the same point. We used to try to supply to them the research, the information on which they could base their activities. We wanted to support them the best that we could. We all had a kind of role to play, and we tried to fulfill our roles as they tried to feel, uh, fulfill theirs. Uh, that's the end of the section. But it, 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 it's just an effort in this book to show that the Urban League's history is a lot more complicated than people sometimes realize, and that the, um, the dispute between different organizations in the black community uh, takes on a different um, uh, tone, so to speak, if you look at what happened on the ground and to try to deal with some of the records uh, that are available um, in the uh, that would produce in the heat of the, the struggle. And so the Urban League, uh, in this case, uh, they did not, as, they, uh, as the executive did, when they tried to desegregate the swimming pool, the executive director just leaped into the pool and violated the city's um, 
you know, segregation is cold, that black people don't swim in this pool. Uh, now, and by the mid-60s, they weren't, you know, jumping into pools or, or doing the same level of on-the-street engagement, but they had set the groundwork uh, for that kind of activity to flourish. But uh, some of the activists were not as aware or they were not as sensitive uh, to the way the Urban League had been a real forerunner and a real ground-breaking organization uh, for black activists. Now, we only have a couple minutes left, but after 100 years, what, uh, what are the Urban League of Pittsburgh's goals now? Uh, the Urban League still is, um, I'm glad you asked that question, Brian, because um, one of the things I want to talk about but cannot talk about much here is that in 1994, the Urban League recruited its first uh, African-American woman uh, president and CEO, Esther Bush, a dynamic leader, a very effective administrator, a sensitive social justice warrior, and she has been at the forefront in many ways of, of fueling uh, and supporting all kinds of movements, including movements against police brutality, uh, movements for equal access to health care, um, movements for black political empowerment. Um, she has played a role in fueling uh, those uh, issues and those developments and uh, has played an important part in sort of adding this activist uh, component of the Urban League's mission uh, up front, putting it up front, and adding the political dimension um, and has, uh, the National Urban League too has changed over time and played a role in mobilizing black voters, putting black voters uh, increasing the number of black voters on the voting uh, rolls and uh, increasing their leverage in politics so that now there's a way in which not armed but opportunity has expanded uh, to include all kind of on-the-ground activist activities and all kinds of participation in established electoral politics uh, within and beyond Pittsburgh. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Joe William Trotter, Jr. He is the author of this book, Pittsburgh and the Urban League Movement, A Century of Social Service and Activism. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.